Good morning, everybody. Thank you for getting up bright and early on a Saturday morning and being here to be together as the body and to get in the Word together. Um, on the materials table, you got your um, outline for today and your assignment for next time. And there's also a handout there called Women in the Bible. Um, today, our topic is taking a look at biblical womanhood, and then the next week for, or the next time we meet for Saturday, and if you're normally at Wednesday, the next two Wednesdays, really all kind of go together because it's really taking a more specific look at what God says about our role as women biblically. And um, so when we look at singleness and marriage, we're looking at how that's lived out in those particular roles. But the, the focus really is what is God's design for us as women. And something that's really encouraging is you just take a broad brush past to the Bible and look at women in the Bible, is that God is so gracious to show us the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all there. Um, and it's there to warn us, to encourage us, to spur us on. And so this is this, this handout is kind of a work in progress. If you see things that you think ought to be added or that ought to be changed, I would just love it if you would let me know that. But I hope that you will use it um, to help yourself become more familiar with what God's Word says specifically about women or examples of women in God's Word, consequences of when they are foolish and the blessings of when they, by God's grace, are obedient. So there's just a lot there, and that's just there as a tool for you. So you can file that away um, along with some of the other resources you've you've gotten this year. So I'm going to pray, and then we have the blessing of having Suzanne Blevins here to go over the disciplines with us this morning. She did that on Wednesday, and since her husband Tom is here for H3, I recruited her to come and share with us today as well. And then Jamie Siegel, who is one of the Wednesday Wellspring teachers, is here to teach our lesson on biblical womanhood. And Barb was going to teach that, and she and Jamie have worked on that lesson together. Barb taught it for us last year, but um, circumstances for Barb just made that a little bit harder for her to do this year. So Jamie was gracious to come, and she taught it on Wednesday, and now she's teaching it to us today. So I'm really thankful for that. All right, so let's pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for being God, for being unchanging, for being sovereign and perfectly good, for knowing all things. And Lord, in your holiness, you have been so kind as to purpose to display your love and your grace and your mercy to those who hate you left to ourselves, who, who love to rule ourselves instead of submitting to your good, righteous, perfect rule. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the new life that everyone who puts their hope and trust in him has. And Lord, thank you for new hearts that can be transformed by your word, that can be transformed into the image of your son. Lord, we pray that as your word goes out this morning that you would transform us, that we would be impacted, that your spirit would apply it to our lives in such a way that we know you and love you more, that we live lives that display you better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Suzanne, thank you. 
Well, is that is our practice? We'll take out our notebooks and turn them over that we might be reminded of our wellspring purpose and go over our disciplines. And we know that our wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women at Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they may live out the gospel that's encouraging the church in its gospel purpose. Well, thanks be to God for laying upon the hearts of our pastors to shepherd us so well. We are very blessed ladies to be cared for in this way. And thanks be to God for preparing Chris and um, Jamie and Sarah to feed us so richly with all that we've been given at Wellspring. What a great privilege we have in which you are pursuing and it's just fun to be here on a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. to see the women who are coming to pursue God so faithfully in doing that. Well, God is equipping and encouraging each of us to grow deeper in our understanding of the needs of our heart to be shepherded. Without this understanding of the condition of our hearts, we will so see no need for the only one who can save us who can redeem us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. We are seeing the means of grace God has given to us in his word and the purpose he has for us to live out the gospel and thus strengthen the church in that gospel purpose. Well, Wellspring has been another or is another wonderful means of grace to learn about the mixed condition of our hearts. As women who follow Jesus Christ, The penalty for sin has been paid for. The power of sin has been broken. But the presence of sin still remains and must be battled continually. As I see and I think upon again and again all that the Father has done for me and for you through Jesus Christ, I am deepened in my awareness of his amazing grace toward me daily and the constant need I have for Christ through the word as I battle that remaining sin. Well, discipline one, the heart. And we always start with the heart because we know that from our theme verse, Proverbs 4.23, it is the wellspring of life. It's the core of all we are, our emotions and personality, and it's the heart effect. I'm sorry, it's the heart that affects everything we do. There is nothing that the heart does not affect, as Jacob shared with us a couple of weeks ago. We must be, learn to be aware of this heart of ours. What is it that my heart is desiring at this very moment? Whose kingdom am I proving to be concerned about right now? My kingdom or God's kingdom? Why did I respond that way? What's going on? Where are my affections set right now? So becoming aware of what's going on in this heart helps us to battle that sin within. It's so very important, really life-sustaining important, to stay near to God through his word. As I am diligent to bring my heart to God, he reveals to me his holiness, his magnificence, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, and my own sinfulness. What a great mercy this is to us, to be able to see our sin, Seeing my sin, seeing my heart, humbles me so that I depend upon him more, that I long to know him more intimately. 
I recognize by the Holy Spirit how utterly helpless and hopeless I am without him. As I allow the Lord full access to my heart and I admit my sin before him, how much greater this mer- his mercy is known to me. Being in the word, being reminded over and over and over again, we can't be reminded enough of the gospel. My gratefulness for the cross increases. My affection for this sinless one soars. Now, if I do not understand why I'm in the word, I may not be real anxious to be alone with him, to be quiet before the Lord, because I know what's coming. My sin will be revealed. His holiness will be revealed. If I focus only on the sin in my heart, I can quickly become discouraged. But the gospel is good news. I can't look at my sin without looking at at the cross at the good news of the gospel. In Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We do not deserve this great mercy, but he loved us, and he redeemed us to be his own. As sin becomes bitter to me, Christ becomes sweeter to me. Discipline 1 continues on. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular the gospel. Prayerfully. It's a word that stops me because our hearts are not inclined to pursue God or to get into his word, to engage with the God of the word. We ask God to soften our hearts toward his word, allowing us to know him more completely. It's not how much, how many times we read through the word, but how many times the word gets through us. Jacob gave us a great reminder last week, two weeks ago, I guess, for you. Our hearts have been changed by God if we have come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Now it's about guarding what has already been changed. It's not just about keeping sin out, but allowing God in, allowing God to search my heart and to reveal anything that's not pleasing to him there. Again, it's about bringing my deceitful, greedy, selfish heart into full contact with the word of God who is my only hope in battling that remaining presence of sin and we are to rejoice in this great mercy we move on to discipline too she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel rehearsing those gospel realities those gospel truths in answer to our own sinfulness prepares and readies us to lay down our lives for those in our homes. The gospel compels me to love and to serve others, knowing my own need for my Savior. Remember, we're sinners living with sinners. Our hearts are the same in their constant need of God's grace. We will sin against others and others will sin against us. We need him. We get off track in our thinking so quickly, thinking we deserve this, or that, or to be treated this way, or that way. In our homes, we have the privilege to help one another, to bring our thoughts back into alignment with God's word, reminding each other of what he says. It's in conversations and prayers directed to love, as we have been loved, as we have been forgiven. We often remind each other in our homes, um, maybe when we've been sinned against, when did Christ die for you? right while I was yet a sinner not when I was perfect and I was doing well 
while I was a sinner, while I was in complete opposition to him, he loved us. And in Romans 5.8, again, as in Ephesians, God showed his great love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And because of this undeserved gift, <clears throat> now I can love this person who has wronged me. I can extend the same grace God gave me. The gospel compels us to lay down our lives for another. Oh, to grow in that grace. It happens often that I'm engaged with the Lord early in the morning, and either I sin soon after or I'm sinned against. What do I do? How quickly again I can lose sight of the gospel. Well, the Holy Spirit may call back to mind something from the word that morning. By his grace, I may be reminded of the gospel truths at that moment needed. Or sometimes I have to just yell, stop in my mind and take myself back to the word and sit down and renew my mind once again with it. By doing that, I'm training myself to, and um, training myself before I respond sinfully to stop and bring my thoughts captive, to align myself with the word of God again. And then discipline three, ministry. Now with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her home, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And I'm thankful this isn't something we have to do, um, but an overflow of discipline one and two. We know from Wellspring that we never graduate from any of these disciplines, that they're always happening at the same time. This ministry to others is God's work. I'm simply an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. As I recognize my utter dependence on God, I no longer have to have it all together before I can encourage other women to shepherd their own hearts toward our very kind and merciful Father. We all are beggars telling one another where the bread of life is, directing each other like a sign back to Christ. We are ironing, sharpening iron. Ministry is not knowing about what to do to help one another. It's not a list of things that we check off to do, but to know, to deeply know the one who is the source of all that we all need. Our lives are very different in what the Lord uses to refine us and to make us into the image of his Son. It's very easy to become discouraged in life because we lose perspective so easily, so quickly. We um. Our eyes must constantly be redirected to the cross. It's important that we spur one another on toward loving good deeds, being reminded of that great love with which we have been loved. I'm thankful that God has given us other women in our lives to remind each other of the gospel and the realities of the truth that God has given us in his word. We sang a song on Sunday, O Great God, and in verse 3 it reminded me of our disciplines. And I'm not a singer, so I won't sing it for you. <laughs> Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven. That is why we long to know our Savior, to shepherd our hearts well, to minister to those that God brings into our lives because he alone is worthy to be praised. May our lives be a living epistle 
a living letter to the world of this great God of highest heaven. I'm thankful for the reminder that we don't have to have it all together to do ministry, (laughs) for sure, and for the reminder that we are serving our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and pointing one another where we need to be pointed to, and that's to our Savior. And so, um, surprise, (laughs) for those of you who didn't know we were going to be here, um, but it is definitely a privilege. It's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to see all of your faces um, here so early this morning. My grandma used to sing this song to me, and I just thought of it, and I can't, like, get it out of my head of um, um, she, every morning, you know, and I thought of you when I seen your faces. Uh, um, good morning to you. Guys, good morning to you. We're all in our places with sunshiny faces. <laughs> And that's what I was thinking of. It's ridiculous, but... (laughs) Because what a place to be, right? And you have sunshiny faces, and it's just a blessing to see them. And can you imagine being able to start our day every day like this? (laughs) Sorry. Just my terrible, distracted mind. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can be here. And thank you, Lord, for the faces and for the hearts that are here at 7 a.m. in the morning to learn and grow to be more like your son. Thank you, Lord, that, as Suzanne reminded us, when we were yet sinners, you died for us. So, God, now as we um, look at your word, as we learn more about who you have created us to be as women, God, I pray that we would um, have undistracted hearts that we would have engaged hearts, that you, uh, by your Spirit, would teach us, that you would convict us where you want us to be convicted and encourage us. I pray, Lord, that we would be women pursuing your design, Not not what the world would tell us, but your perfect design. We love you, Father, and may this be a time that you are honored and glorified and made much of, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, Sarah did did mention that Barb and I um, worked on this lesson last year, and um, that was such a privilege, and I miss her. (laughs) Um, But it is a privilege to be here, and I do see it as a privilege to be here. so we're just going to get started. Um, I'm going to, we're going to start with a couple of questions for you this morning. Um, how many of you have given much thought to the topic of biblical womanhood? You know, what the Bible says about our femininity, about our um, identity as a woman. That, that word femininity is a word that we don't really hear very often anymore, do we? And sometimes I think when we hear the word femininity, maybe we think of like pink and lace, (laughs) right? And that's not what we're talking about at all. Elizabeth Elliot says this, and it's so good. She says, femininity is not a curse. You and I, if we are women, have the gift of femininity. 
And it's a divine gift to be accepted with both hands and to thank God for. Because remember, it was his idea. It was his idea. I have another question for you. Do you think that maybe some, if not much, of what we believe about our womanhood or our femininity is based on culture and not based on scripture? I remember before and even after God saved me being so offended hearing, um, hearing things like, a woman's place is in the home. And you know, that would just really offend me. And maybe their motive was to offend me. I, you know, whatever. But it would offend me because I, even though I wanted to be in the home, it was degrading to me and it was demeaning. Or I used to play a lot of softball. And if I heard um, you throw like a girl, <laughs> that would offend me. Like, that was a bad thing to throw like a girl. But you know what? I'm a girl. I'm a girl. I should throw like a girl. Right? But I didn't know God's design for me as a woman. And I felt this restless rebellion in my heart when I would hear things like that. There are so many conflicting voices in our culture today. And one of the loudest voices over the last 50 or 60 years or so has been that of feminism. So we're going to take some extra time. We're going to do something a little bit differently this morning. We're not going to open up the word right away. We're going to talk about our culture. We're going to take a look back in history, and then we're going to talk about where we find ourselves today, at least the little bit that I've learned, just a little bit. Um, and then and then we're going to open up the word of God, and we're going to see what he has to say in his word. So what is feminism? Well, feminism started out being this radical movement about women's rights. Um, we enjoy the right to vote, actually, because of that movement, and I'm thankful for the privilege to vote, the privilege. But feminism, though in the beginning started out being more about legal rights, it grew and it developed into something much, much more. It's a distinct worldview with its own ideologies, its own values, its own way, ways of thinking. Uh, the feminist era was a period of time where feminist ideas were being developed and promoted and even accepted into our culture. And even among the feminists and, and their agendas, there wasn't really one consensus regarding the definition of feminism or their meaning of womanhood. It was all over the board. And so it's so hard to define. I mean, I tried to like figure out like one, like come up with one sentence definition, and you really can't. Um, but I'll try to explain a little bit of it, just get a better grasp of it. Um, there's what's called the mommy wars. Been going on for years regarding women's rights um, and the debate to have a career, and raise children, you know, and that whole debate that, that went on for such a long time. But we don't hear as much about that today in our culture, um, but we still do. Radical feminists would argue that an educated woman's face, place was in the home in the, or in the workplace, period. That's it. Um, and then there were pro-abortion feminists whose campaign was for a woman's right to take the life 
of an unborn baby. That was their agenda. Um, there were also pro-life feminists, though, who totally opposed abortion while subscribing to many other ideas of feminism. The most important thing to remember is this. Women's rights, equality in all forms is what they were after. Feminism um, was and is about freedom and choice to be whoever you want to be, to do whatever you want to do. The cultural message in all forms was and still is rights, equality, self-sufficiency. How many of you have heard that term, male chauvinist pigs? Maybe not you young ones. Yeah, you have too. Okay, Because I didn't even know if that was still around or not. Um, but it was a really popular term back then for men. I, I used it. <laughs> I did, um, sadly. It's when women's attitudes were, you know, I can open my own door, thank you. That would be offensive for a man to open, open a, a woman's door. I can buy my own dinner on a date. Or I can support myself, thank you very much. Songs like, I am woman, hear me roar. You guys remember that song? Or R-E-S-B-E-C-T, right? I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> I sing. Um, were, those songs were and still are women's anthems. And women are better and they're stronger than men. It was a time when degrading men became funny and acceptable. Just watch commercials, watch TV. It's all over the place. But their mantra was that no one, especially men, even in marriage, have the right to tell women what to do, leaving them trusting and no other authority other than their own perceived truths. There's a whole mindset of personal authority instead of bowing before the authority of God. Well, over the past decade, we've been transitioning from that feminist era to what some call a post-feminist era. What's the difference? Well, in the feminist era... Feminist ideas were being developed, and now they're pretty much fully formed. Their agenda and philosophies were pushed by philosophers and teachers and professors, and now they're just embraced and they're believed by mostly everyone. They've been integrated into our thinking. The ideas were radical, and now they're just commonplace. I mean, we don't even recognize what, what my grandma would have considered a radical feminist view. I remember my grandma, um, I lived with her watching um, TV when like, the women were making a political statement or something, burning their bras. And she was, she was it, it was just mind-boggling to her. And, um, you know, they don't even do that anymore. But in the feminist era, feminist ideas were identifiable, and now they're indistinguishable from the mainstream thought. Feminist as a, feminism as a movement it seems to be pretty much over. It's really not a movement anymore because it's been so successful and it's transitioned to being the current mindset and belief of most everyone, at least in the culture. It's been so mainstreamed into our society that it's just normal. It's the way we think. It's what we see when we shop, what we hear women should be like, 
on TV and movies. It's in our books. It's in our education system. It's in the Girl Scouts of America, girl power. American girl stories. I googled girl power. It's mind-boggling what, what comes up. I don't recommend doing it. One author said this. Feminism has so seeped into our culture and mindset, it's like intravenous drugs into the veins of an unconscious patient. The question asked to women by one of the leaders of feminism was, what is it that will bring women joy and fulfillment? What is it that will bring her purpose and meaning in life? And their answer Women bought into the lie, hook, line, and sinker, that feminism, or whatever you want to call it today, will bring them what they want, what they think they deserve. And all this demanding of rights, it was supposed to bring women greater fulfillment and freedom and liberation. It was supposed to make women feel better about themselves, but instead we see just the opposite. Even the New York Times had an article that said these women do not feel better about themselves. They aren't happier They are disoriented and confused, and they lack a sense of vision and purpose for their lives. What they are seeking can only be filled by the transforming power of the gospel. When we humbly acknowledge the truth of the gospel, when we repent and believe in Jesus and the finished work on the cross, and all the realities of the gospel, and then live according to God's design, that's true joy. Because that yearning and that longing for something more will not be filled with anything else. It can't be filled by the formula we've been given by feminism. So where do we find ourselves today as a culture? Pretty confused. Pretty confused. Our upcoming post-feminist generation has little or no understanding of God's design for men, God's design for women. Many reject completely his plan for gender. One of the most recent and devastating debates is over the God-given differences between men and women. In our culture today, many men, they're not being taught and they're not being raised to understand what it means to be a man, and many women aren't being taught, and they're not being raised to understand what it means to be a woman, often despising their femininity completely or who God created them to be. And all of this is just has devastating effects on our culture and on our families today. There's much talk about gender confusion and gender disorders and gender identity and gender neutrality. And I'm not talking about this. There's about 1% of babies being born that are born with a medical condition. Um, That's a medical condition. I'm talking about rebellion. We're seeing even more of what's been going on for years, been going on for years, but where men and women, they believe that they were born with wrong body parts. Females want to be males. Males want to be females. They want to have surgeries. Parents are allowing children to have these surgeries and take hormone replacement drugs. I've been reading quite a few blogs. It's so sad 
It is so sad to see the hopelessness and the despair and the rebellion. And you know, we don't need new body parts, right? We we know they don't need new hearts. I mean, they need new hearts, not new body parts, right? Just like we needed a new heart. We needed a new heart. You know, they need new hearts. I needed a new heart. I was completely rebellious. I was completely rebellious as well. But God, in his mercy, he gave me a new heart, and he changed everything. So I just want to keep that in mind when we talk about this and the culture and the world that we live in. But in their push to be whatever gender um, they decide they want to be, there are those who don't want to be recognized as, as a gender at all. They want to be gender neutral. This is really happening. It's out there. And, and you know what? It's coming. It's full steam ahead into our culture. There's talk about uh, coming up with a gender neutral pronoun. I don't know if you read about a baby, the baby born in Canada this year, where the parents um, are raising the baby uh, gender neutral, not telling anyone if the baby is a boy or a girl, in order to let the child decide what the child wants to be when he or she grows up or makes that decision. I read another blog on how to raise gender-neutral children doing the same thing. There's so much I read about that I don't want to fill your minds with. Um, But maybe you read about this. A taxpayer-funded preschool in Sweden. This school is operating under the theory that by eliminating um, any reference to gender, the students won't fall prey to the stereotyping of gender roles. They say that in this school there are no boys, And there are no girls. They call each other friends. Egalia, the school's name, gives them a fantastic opportunity to be whoever they want to be, they say. They're not allowed to use the pronouns him or her. They replace the gender label with a made-up word that doesn't even exist in the Swedish language. There are no gender-promoting fairy tales. There's no Snow White. There's no Cinderella. But they do favor books featuring gay and lesbian couples and single parents. There's a waiting list for this school. And only one family's dropped out. Somebody told me yesterday, um, I don't know how many of you have recently signed up for a, a Gmail account, but when you fill, fill it out, there's male, female, or other. Those are the options for the Gmail account. It's coming. It's here. Full steam ahead. Um, Last year, uh, Barb told you about um, the article that we read where the word mother and father, uh, they were removed from U.S. passport applications for children and replaced with gender-neutral terminology, parent one and parent two stating that with the changes in medical science and reproductive technology, we are confronting situations now that we would not have anticipated 10 or 15 years ago. All of this, all of this is denying our Creator's perfect design. The secular world is now deeply committed to the idea of gender neutrality. They want a world free from any concern for gender, a world where masculinity and femininity are erased, not just blurred, but erased as old-fashioned ideas. 
or at least the category of male and female, are negotiable. Their argument is that we must be free. We have the right to make whatever adjustments, alterations, or transformations in gender and gender relationships that we desire. And all of this, and all of this, they're denying the Creator. Nothing of who God is in Scripture is revealed by such an anti-God view. It's a full-on attack against the Creator who created them in His own image, male and female. He created them. And we need to see it that way. John Piper and Wayne Grudem write this, The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness and femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It's taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. The consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more sexual um, or more divorce more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more emotional distress and suicide that comes with the loss of God-given identity. Now, this is the world we live in. This is where godlessness has taken us. This is what sin does to us. This is about someone exalting self over and against all the rest of what even, even a culture has understood for thousands of years. But mostly, it's an exaltation of self against God. What I'm saying may not be politically correct, right? But it's certainly biblically correct. It should come as no huge surprise to any of us that the secular world is confused and completely distorted about the identity and calling of a woman. But what is worse is the extent to which the worldly philosophy of our culture has influenced even the evangelical world. It's in the air air we breathe. We may not even know we've adopted feminist values, but I can almost guarantee that none of us in this room is exempt from being affected by it. In fact, one author says, scores of evangelical women are functional feminists because the world's paradigm for womanhood is the only one they've ever heard. And this is true. Feminist ideals, they're not just out there because, well, God in his grace, he saves people. He saves us. Out of the culture, he gives us new hearts, he brings us into the church, and we bring a lot of that with us, right? I brought it in. I brought it in. And so, of course, it's going to be in the church. But the church, rather than holding up the word of God and exalting God's design for men and women, has in many cases let that ideology into its teaching. And so, we've seen gender-neutral Bibles, women ministers and pastors, gay clergy, and, and so on. And because of all of this, We need to know. We need to know and humbly speak and live out clearly what the Bible teaches about our biblical womanhood. Without fear. 
You know, we may even be persecuted, right, for speaking the truth. We want to embrace this gift of femininity given to us by God. So this morning, we're going to survey scripture finally, right? And we're going to see God doing two things throughout his word that cannot be separated. We're going to see our spiritual equality, number one. And we're going to see our role differentiation, the distinctions and differences between roles um, of men and women. <clears throat> men and women are spiritually equal before God. And then, and we have these differing roles in our families and in our church. So on your outline, you'll see we've laid it out for you this way. We're going to see our spiritual equality and our role differentiation in three categories. First, we're going to look at the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at Jesus' treatment of women. And then we're going to, um, going to look some more at the New Testament. These two biblical realities of spiritual equality and role differentiation, they're inseparable. Okay, they're inseparable. And it's called the complementarian view. Because the role of men and women, they complement one another. And we embrace this complementarian view because God's revealed it in Scripture to be this way. And we embrace this view because of the stunning revelation that biblical manhood and womanhood bring into this dark culture, into this dark world. And the amazing joy and contentment for us, not only in the image he recreated us into at salvation, but also in the different divinely assigned roles he's given us, in which his self-giving loves to be displayed. Listen, we will find freedom and we will find joy, not in casting off his design, but embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is making God more clearly known. We must be women of God who embrace whatever God has given us to make him visible. We don't have to look to our culture to find our feminine identity. We don't have to consult our feelings to discover our purpose. There's only one place. There's only one place to go to get our our thoughts drained out about what it means to be a woman. And that's God and his word. He made women. Elizabeth Elliot says this, In order to learn what it means to be a a woman, we must start with the one who made her. So, let's turn to Genesis 1. Let's turn to Genesis 1:26, and we're we're going to start on your outline at the first point, old the Old Testament under spiritual equality. From the very beginning, we see in Scripture that men and women are equally created in the image of God. Starting in verse 26, then God said, "Let us make man in our image." According to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is his design. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? I think you have it there on your outline. Colossians 1, verse 15 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we look to Jesus to see what that image is. 
And what did it look like for Jesus to bear the image of God? We have the scripture on your outline, Philippians 2, 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He existed in the form of God, and form is a similar word to image. So he existed in the image of God. Do you see the unity with God here? And, and, and then he didn't regard that unity, that equality with God as something to be grasped after. But verse 7 says he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. What did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not promote himself. He didn't fight for his rights. But rather, here in verse 7, says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Being in the form of God led him to take on the form of a slave. The image of God is that of serving, not grasping for yourself, your ideas, self-promotion, but of humility, humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. And Jesus confirmed this when he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served. But what? Yeah. He did not come to be served, but rather, in Mark 10, it says he came to serve. The Son of Man, Jesus, he came to serve. And how did he do that? He gave his life. He gave his life away for many and you have uh, uh, some more references there in your outline. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Hebrews 1.3 on your sheets. And, and um, I hope you do go back and look at them later. So that's the image of God in which men and women were created to bear this kind of self-giving love in Christ. However, men and women have also been equally impacted and corrupted by sin. That's on your outline. After... Um, uh, on the, where are we? Yeah, right there. You see it? Men and women? Okay. Okay, so men and women have been equally impacted and corrupted by sin. <clears throat> so, after man was created in God's image in Genesis 1, what do we see right around the corner in Genesis 3? Sin entered the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's all about God's majesty and his awesome power and his perfect design and abundance. I mean, we can, really, can we even grasp the power of God to create a universe out of, out of nothing? I mean, we can't relate to humanity that's perfectly innocent. Unfortunately, sadly, we can relate to chapter 3 of Genesis, can't we? So we go from his majesty and we go from his wonder in chapters 1 and 2 to very familiar territory when the serpent came. Eve was attacked at the very image of God in her. He slandered God and Eve's heart was enticed. She became a self-grasper, tarnishing the display of God's image in her. That's what we do when we live for ourselves. And when Eve sinned, it all but destroyed his image. And then Adam gave in, and two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them, and, and we've all been plagued by that ever since. So, men and women were equally impacted 
equally corrupted by sin's presence and sin's power. They were both equally unable to change their sinful condition, both equally in need of salvation. One is not more spiritually bankrupt than the other. We are spiritually equal. But there are differences in our roles. That's the next point on your outline, role differentiation. Turn to Genesis 2.18, if you would, please, where God shows us his purpose in creating woman. Starting in verse 18, he says, And the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It was Adam who was created first and then Eve. God created man for a particular task and then he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to compliment him in fulfilling the task of taking dominion over the earth. And so God created Eve. Adam didn't need another Adam. He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. So right here we already see the differing roles before the fall. Even the order in which they were created is linked to different roles, but it doesn't affect our spiritual equality at all. And when we use that word equality, I'm not talking about that equal rights equality. Uh, we We are sinners equally in need of salvation, and we equally share in the blood of Christ, and we are equally called to be used in his kingdom in our differing roles. So God created man first, then the woman. God has this order in mind when he created an order that Paul will repeatedly appeal to in the New Testament. And that's on your outline as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. Or maybe not. Oh, I don't have that one on there. But in 1 Corinthians 11.3 it says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And God's the head of Christ. Do you see the order there? There's, there's an order. Okay, so God always established that men would be leader in leadership roles um, right from the beginning. In, in Israel... Men were responsible for the national and religious leadership from the garden to the final prophet. There's Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to David and the rest of the kings, the priesthoods, the priesthood of Israel, the prophets of the nations. And, and women, they were also active in the religious life of the nation. Okay, we have the prophetesses like Miriam and Huldah, and we have Deborah, she was a judge. But what we do not have an account for in the Old Testament is significant. There were never any women priests, heads of tribes and kings. That's significant. But, okay, next point on your outline, 
sin distorted their God-given role differentiation. Sin did not introduce it. Turn back to Genesis 3, 1, starting in verse 1. and We're really not even going to read it. But remember, man and woman, they already had their roles prior to the fall. Their roles were not introduced as punishment after or because of the fall. Our roles are not God's punishment for sin. I've always been taught and believed and even taught last year that part of the distortion of our roles came through uh, God's judgment in Genesis 3.16, you know, where he says um, our desire, that word desire will be for our husbands. And, and I'm convinced now that that's not part of the curse. And, and I'm so thankful for Smed's teaching last year, last summer, um, when he taught through Genesis 1 through 3. And if you missed that, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. And if you have any questions afterwards, you can talk to Sarah or me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but he reminded us that the distortion of our roles it, it doesn't start in Genesis 3.16 when God pronounced the curse to women. It started at the very beginning of chapter 3. We, we find Eve in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter. He's evil and he's deceptive. And, and Eve was caught off guard. He slandered, gar, he slandered God and her heart was enticed. Verse six, in verse 6, um, she believed his lie. That if she gave in... She would be wise and that God was keeping something from her. So she disobeyed God and ate. She gave it to her husband. He rebelliously ate. And as you read through that, you already see that. You know, who, who is she trusting in at that very moment? She's trusting in herself, right? Think about Eve's sin. What was her sin? Independence. Self-grasping. Self-reliance. I mean, what was she doing listening to the serpent anyway? She trusted in her own judgment. Getting out from under God's authority. Getting out from under her husband. And seeking to satisfy herself. Rebellion against God. Where is that in fulfilling her role as a helper? How does that in any way acknowledge Adam's leadership over her? How does that honor God's right to define her role? And you know, Adam had his part as well. In a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed the lie that she could trust herself more than she could trust God. And that's, that's rejection of the role God gave her. And as we live in this mixed condition, we've learned about, thankfully, this side of the cross, this is very familiar to us as well, right? How do we, how do we see that in our own hearts? Well, just like Eve, we may independently step out from our husband's protection, if married, to seek control over him. We do it by taking charge, seeking to control, master, stepping outside of God's design. And, you know, it can really show up in various ways. For some of us, trying to control may be this really quiet smoldering, silent treatment. Sometimes that hostility can take on an attitude of coldness, you know, or indifference. You know, you just don't really care anymore. With others, it's a 
shouting hostility. It isn't much of a secret to anybody, right? Especially those in our household. Anybody relate to that one? <clears throat> we have one. One. <laughs> For some of us, we have such a way of bulldozing right over our husbands or others with our words. Anybody relate to that one? I, you don't need to raise your hands. I will raise mine. Sin is what distorts our God-given differentiation of roles. This is what sin does to us. You know why God gave us roles? Because he has something to communicate through them. And sin's motive is to destroy that image through the distortion or through undoing the roles that God has for us. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. They forfeited life in the goodness of the garden. They traded unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth, childbearing. We now deal with disease and physical complications, pain, even in raising and nurturing children. Many of us know that very well. There's also death, and most importantly, there's separation from God. Adam and Eve, they were the first ones to sin, but we are no different. Ladies, our problem is not men or equal rights like the world would have us think. Our problem is sin. Sin warps everything. James tells us that sin's the reason for jealousy and selfish ambition, disorder and every vile practice that char- characterizes false wisdom. Sin's the reason we need a Savior. So now... We're going to look at how Jesus emphasized the exact same thing. There's a consistent pattern here, and it's continuing. That's the next, number two, on your outline. Where Jesus dramatically, he emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with man in the midst of this really woman-demeaning Greek, Roman, and even Jewish culture. In that culture, women were possessions. Not even worth uh, teaching the Torah to. In fact, they would have believed it was better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. They, they claimed that, by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual or theological truths. Men in Jesus' day, they normally wouldn't even allow, or they wouldn't count change into a woman's hand for fear of physical uh, contact. But Jesus, he dramatically countered this godless view of women. The references are here on your outline, and you can look them up later if, if you'd like to. But Jesus, he uses illustrations and images familiar and useful for women. And Matthew, that's the first, first one, Matthew 13, uh, 33 and on. Jesus revealed himself as Messiah to women in John 4. And in Luke 10, while Martha, she was busy in the kitchen, Jesus was what? Who was he teaching? Mary. He was teaching Mary, which was so countercultural. Jesus touched women, and he allowed them to touch him in Luke 8. Jesus allowed women to travel with him and his disciples, which was unprecedented at that time. And in John 20, Jesus revealed himself first to Mary Magdalene after he, after he rose from the dead, sending her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not even allowing women to witness because they were considered liars. In Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and respect in a way they had never known in their culture. He didn't demean women. All of this demonstrated their spiritual equality. 
Jesus at the same time did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also never did, though he clearly could have, is to choose any woman to be among the twelve. I mean, that would have been a prime opportunity to change what God so far had revealed in the Old Testament. A prime time to establish a change for women's roles, but he didn't do that. Why didn't Jesus choose women disciples? Well, because he affirms and continues God's view and God's pattern for the role of women revealed in the Old Testament. And that leads us to number three on your outline, the rest of the New Testament under spiritual equality. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction, distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender or another. You have some more examples on your outline, like Acts 18.26, where Priscilla and his wife Aquila, they equally served Apollos uh, to build him up with more complete teaching in Christ. And in Philippians 4, you have Odia and Syntyche. They were both women. They shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. And we also see that both men and women receive spiritual gifts. And in 1 Peter 3, it says the wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. However, there are different roles. You know, it's so easy. It is so easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament, isn't it? We love, we love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That men and women have an equal need for Jesus. And we have an equal cleansing in his blood. But ladies, the gospel is every bit as much on display in the different roles God describes for men and women in the New Testament. The Lord's designed for us different roles in order that we participate together in displaying the gospel. Remember, what we see in the Word, it's inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It's not inspired by the culture of that day. You see references on your outline uh, where the different roles and responsibilities for men and women are described for leadership in the church, under church. Um, and we're, and I'm just going to summarize them this way. For leadership roles of the church, the elders and the deacons are offices filled by men. The primarily broader teaching responsibility rests on the men. This is God's design for display, displaying the love of Christ in the church. Men have this incredible responsibility to display Christ, his loving servant leadership toward the body. Women, the roles and privileges that God has given us are about displaying the supportive and submissive character of the church in her relationship to her Savior. We respond. We follow the lead of our elders and our deacons. So even when we are ministering one to another, whether it's preparing meals, whether we're discipling alongside of our husbands. Um, All of these ministries, they're ultimately overseen by men. Wellspring is overseen by the elders. And I love that. Actually, Scott is the elder over Wellspring, and there's protection. See, our elders, they love the Lord. They love his church. And they take their roles seriously. And in that, they love and care for us. And we need their shepherding. Their leadership and um, it's so comforting to know that we have it. 
I can't imagine um, doing this ministry. Um, I, I, actually, I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do this ministry without that. When scripture limits the scope in which we are to use our gifts, again, it's because God's design to display his relationship with his people um, are, it's through that limitation. It's all about how he displays his love and his care and protection and leadership for his people and how his people trust him and, and follow his lead. In a marriage, we find the same principle at work. I mean, husbands have this mind-boggling right, responsibility, this calling to what? Love their wives. So I just have to ask, do you see that high calling that, that husbands have? And, and as his helpmate, how are you helping in that? Are you lovable? This responsibility to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But I just think about that. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself. He gave himself to purchase us for himself. So if you're married, you can display your trusting submission to your Savior by submitting to your husband. We get to serve. We get to give ourselves away in that. And if you're not married, you have the privilege to display your trusting submission to the Lord by submitting to the authorities that God has over you, your parents, your boss, elders in the church. See, when men and women, they fulfill their God-given roles, and we as women live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders, and under our husbands, the word of God is honored, and the gospel is put on display. We actually demonstrate to one another and to a watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship to his bride. This is why we embrace who God's created us to be. It's why we embrace biblical womanhood, because God has something to reveal about himself to us and to the world through not only our spiritual equality, but also through our different roles. Did you see that as being exciting? Isn't that exciting? You see it that way? Yes? Okay, so how do the different roles reveal our great God? Well, first of all, think of this. The members of the Godhead, they have different roles along with their divine equality. Man and woman give us, um, give us a simpler picture of who our triune three-in-one God is. Think about this. Each of the three members of the Godhead reveal the image of God to be the self-giving love. Each of the three, they manifest the self-giving love toward one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father and gives himself over to the Father's will to redeem his people. The Spirit gives of himself to reveal the Son to his people. And both recreated man and woman equally possess this image within. But that image is enhanced, it's magnified and glorified, not by men and women having the exact same roles. The, the Son takes on a different role from the Father without losing any of the self-giving love, without losing any deity, to diminish any one of their unique roles would cause us to miss something of God and who he is. And the same is true with the different roles given to men and the roles given to women and the roles given to married women and the roles given to single women because our roles are unique privileges from God. 
Sarah's going to be teaching more um, on this the next time uh, you gather here in a couple of weeks. The roles are there to reveal something more of who God is and what his image is within us. And if we seek to erase these roles, whether we're married or not, then, then we make the image of God within us less visible. We are image bearers of the living God. And we are equal before the cross, but with different divinely assigned roles. And when male and female live and they work together as God intended, it's beautiful. There's, there's your joy, and, and it's satisfying, and it's God-glorifying. So let's grow in this and encourage one another to embrace and love the God-given roles for us because God will best be seen within us, within our, within our marriages, within our families, within our church, and within the culture as we're obedient to him in those roles he's given us. And because it exalts God, it exalts God the Father and exalts God the Son and it exalts God the Holy Spirit. To not live up to the role God has given us as men and women or to cross those role boundaries God has for us is to cloud the visibility of God in and through us as redeemed people. It's to send a distorted message to the lost world around us. His created order is beautiful. It's beautiful. God took delight in it, and what did he say? It is good. It is very good. You can see his pleasure in what he's made, and it reflects his character. And as believing women, we can. We can love it as well. Why? Because it was given to us by our wise creator. Not only that, but there is peace, and there is purpose. And the woman who shepherds her heart and mind every day to embrace God's plan. And you know, because these images are such, or because these are such critical images, you know, is it any wonder that they're at the center of such a strong battle today? We shouldn't be surprised that Satan wants to wage war, our flesh wants to wage war and our culture wants to wage war. God determined how we best glorify him. So we need to look to God's heart at his heart for male and his heart for female, his heart for authority and his heart for leadership and bow. We must look at all of that and say, God, you tell me how I best glorify you. And I'll humbly bring myself in line with that. And you know, if we're not grounding our lives and our thinking, if we're not shepherding our hearts in the Word of God, and if we're not understanding what the Word of God teaches us about what it means to be a woman biblically, and how those roles are to function within the our families and our homes and our churches and within the culture, then sooner or later we'll be vulnerable in our homes and in our churches and in our culture to the very same kinds of thinking that's turned the secular culture upside down. Listen, theology matters. It matters. Your view of God will determine your view of every other aspect in life. 
so we need to take this seriously. Because when we choose to live apart from his design, we distort the gospel picture and miss the entire point of being a woman. You know, every time I value my independence, my own life plans, and my own opinions over what would bring God glory in displaying the gospel, it's rebellion. It's rebellion against God and who he created me to be. And you know, apart, (laughs) the truth is, apart from the gospel, this makes no sense. This is absolutely, it makes absolutely no sense. None of life (laughs) makes sense apart from the gospel. It's our only motivator to, to live in the fullness of God's good plan and gospel purposes. Scripture instructs us as women many things. And we're going to continue on in this um, throughout the end of Wellspring. But Titus 2, uh, Scripture instructs us to be reverent and not gossips and not enslaved to much wine and to teach what is good and to love our husbands and to love our children and to be sensible and pure and, and on and on. First Peter says to develop a gentle and quiet spirit so as not to honor dishonor the word of God. Titus 2 instructs us that older women are to teach the younger women. And ladies, we need to be teaching our daughters and our sons God's design for them as male and God's design for them as female. They need to hear the truth from God's word from creation on regarding masculinity and femininity so they will recognize and reject the world's voice and can be confident in who God's created them to be. Right? And this may happen to me on Wednesday. Lastly, another loud competing voice, competing voice in our culture that's getting louder and louder is that of sexuality and sensuality it's a culture of extremes. There's this talk about this new wave of feminism being called the ranch culture. Sensuality and sexuality is big money. It sells. It's being marketed to us. And it's being marketed to our little ones in every way. First Timothy 2.9 says that women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. How countercultural is that? But we need, we're called to be modest, to be discreet, to be self-controlled in our actions, in our dress, in our attitude. This is all a matter of worship. It's a matter of worship. I'm not talking about outward behavior. I'm talking about worship. The way we dress goes right to the heart of why we wear what we wear. And any discussion that we ever have on modesty begins with the heart. Begins with the heart, not the hemline. The world's loud competing voice to us is that we can make much of ourselves, feel good about ourselves, 
flaunt ourselves however we want, flaunting certain features, expose whatever you want. It's your body, right? That's what you would hear. But it's different for us. We are called, we have the privilege to display something way more glorious, our Savior. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that we're not our own. We're not our own. Our bodies are not our own. We were bought with a price. (laughs) So glorify God in your body. If we profess Christ, our motivation for what we wear is to be distinct from our culture. Guys are visual. Sarah covered this a while back. They're stimulated by things they see, even when they don't want to see them. As women, we can serve and we can worship and we can love our brothers by dressing modestly, covering up nakedness. It's nakedness if we're not modest in certain areas when we expose. Guys, or let's give guys a rest. Give guys a rest for their eyes. And a question we can ask, are clothes provocative? Are they seductive? Do they honor nakedness? Remember, clothes are to cover. They're to cover. They're not to draw attention to our nakedness. And modesty is, is humility expressed in what we wear. It's a desire to serve others, particularly men, and not to pro- promote or provoke sensuality or lust. And we cover up out of respect and love for Christ, for others' sake. For the gospel's sake. Modesty means, here's, here's what, I, I, I read this somewhere and I love it. Modesty means you agree with the Lord about the true purpose of clothing. And set aside self-interests to dress in a way that exalts Christ. I'm not going to say any more. have a lot. <laughs> Other than this. Modesty is, is about a conviction. What I, what I wear relates to who and how I worship and how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we're shopping, we can have intentionality. You know, be purposeful. Ask for help. Ask for modesty checks. Sometimes roommates, sometimes siblings may not be the best, best to ask. In closing, I just want to say this. There will probably always be cultural trends that shift and change, telling us what men and women should be like. But we can take our cues and our definitions from Scripture and not from the culture. And we can confidently trust in that. The Word never changes. The Word never changes. Isn't that liberating? That's liberating. That's comforting. And we don't need to be afraid or think that we have to sugarcoat anything to appeal to someone who opposes biblical truth. We can humbly and confidently display and speak truth. The, the power is in, is, is in the gospel. And without a doubt, in our mixed condition, we will always have to guard against our own self-willed, feminist-like mindset in our own hearts. And I hope that after today, you will ask 
you ask God, where has that kind of thinking, like that feminist kind of thinking, seeped into my heart? And it's my prayer that you leave here this morning with a renewed passion to embrace God's design for you as a woman. There's so much at stake. We can take up the call to live out and teach the next generation God's design for our femininity out of displaying and glorifying him and not in, in gratifying ourselves. It's, it's selfless living and sacrificial living, laying down, down our life in emulation of the Christ we love is worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is so clear your design for us as women. And so now as we go to to our discussion groups, Lord, I pray um, that if there are any questions, they would be asked, that we would um, honor and glorify you in our conversations, that we would encourage one another and lift one another up. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about your perfect design, and I pray that each woman lives here encouraged with who you've created her to be. We love you, Father, and may we walk and live a life worthy of our calling. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.